Economics, the economy, it's always been a hot topic, especially in our capitalistic society. We want the economy to, to do well, we want to succeed, we want to prosper. So people have studied and grappled with the, these important topics of economics for years. And there seem to be many theories about how to approach economics, uh, as, as many theories as there are congressmen in Washington, I think, and probably more. So I'm, I'm not going to discuss the intricacies of, uh, of what makes economies tick, what makes them fail, uh, the nuances of everything in between. But I do want to suggest that God has a way of handling finances, a way that he blesses. And if we do things his way, we can receive his favor. Bottom line, we have to discern if we are living like economic theists or economic atheists. We'll be unpacking that over the next couple of weeks. I, I believe that the church, and, and I've been guilty of this uh, as, as well, I'm sure, the, the church many times has taught that people need to give in order to support the church. And uh, we talk about tithing, giving 10% of our income uh, in the offering. We preachers can hammer that hard. I mean, there, there's a whole uh, you know, semester just on that. Just kidding. No, there's not in seminary. But uh, we, we can really hit that hard and heavy. And the problem is most people, a lot of people, if they're not used to that, uh, they're, they're so upside down in their finances, they can't even fathom giving much away at all, let alone 10% right off the top. So hopefully through this series, uh, just a, a mini-series, I guess we'll call it, hopefully we'll see some principles that don't just beat you up. But, uh, but, but, but help, help to give some of the principles of being financially fit and not living like an economic atheist. Uh, there, there are three parts, I, I believe, three parts of our economic life. And if you get those three things right, then you'll be financially right. You'll, you'll conquer your, your financial troubles and they'll, they'll keep you out of trouble. Three things. If you can only pick three, I think these three things, if you get Get these things settled in your mind, in your heart, in your uh, finances. I think these three things can get you on a solid financial footing. If you could pass along three principles that, uh, the, 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 to your kids, that, that if you could only pass along three things of, of ways to handle things financially, then, uh, then, then they'd be well on their way to having solid financial Lives. They're based in scripture. They, they're, they're really God's solid financial uh, foundations. And these things are the three most defining questions in your economic life. Three things, three questions to ask. How do I work? How do I honor? How do I budget? Those three things. That's, that's our outline for the next three weeks. How do I work? How do I honor? How do I budget? If you get those three questions work out, if you, if you find the, the right answers to those three questions, you're well on your way to financial health and living within the favor of God. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't get those things right. A lot of us, I think, can be deceived. We, we, we think we understand what's going on and, and what we need to do, but, but maybe we don't really know how it all works in God's grand scheme of things. In light of that, I want to, I want to tell you a story. A little over 150 years, a true story. This, is, this, uh, this happened about 150 years ago, middle of the 1800s. There was a Hungarian doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis. Uh, those of you that are Hungarian can tell me later how I'm supposed to say that, but there's his picture. Dr. Semmelweis worked at the Vienna General Hospital in Austria, and the longer he worked there, he began to notice a disturbing trend. 
An unusually large percentage of women were dying after giving birth in the maternity ward. Uh, in, in fact, if a woman went to the hospital to give birth, they were much more likely to die than if they stayed at home and used a, uh, used a, a, a midwife. Dr. Semmelweis obviously was concerned about that. His, his whole, uh, you know, his oath that he had taken was to bring life and healing to people. And, and yet he's noticing this trend that, that in his hospital and with the doctors that he worked with, that these, these uh, ladies are becoming sick from this disease that they don't really know where it's coming from and they certainly couldn't cure it. And so he decided he would study this to, to see what, what would be causing this high mortality rate. And through his investigation, he, he thought there might be a link, as he's watching things, there might be a link uh, between the fact that the same doctors, himself included, so uh, the, the same doctors who performed autopsies on the lower level of the hospital were, were then going upstairs and delivering babies the same day, right afterwards. Maybe he was on to something. Of course, this is before uh, there was any understanding of germs and bacteria and, and how disease spreads and all those kinds. They didn't have any of that. They didn't understand all that. Uh, he just thought, you know what, this seems to be. And, and so he said, I'm not quite sure I understand all this. But, but Dr. Semmelweis said uh, he suggested to the other doctors then at one point uh, in his position, he could actually require some of them to wash their hands in chlorinated lime after they did autopsies before they delivered babies. It was, it was a rule. He, he set up this principle. He set up a line in the sand and said, you've got to do this. Uh, he established this to help them line up with what they were still figuring. They didn't quite understand it all, but, but, but they were trying to figure out this whole issue of science and medicine and how germs spread. And Well, they didn't even know what germs were at that point. And if they followed that principle, if they were carefully washing, then, then uh, things were working better and the, the mortality rate went down. It actually went down dramatically uh, with the doctors that were washing their hands. The problem was that Dr. Semmelweis had a, had a hard time convincing his colleagues that a little dirt under their fingernails would cause disease in someone, would make someone die. They, they, they kind of talking about him behind his back. They were laughing at him. They were, they were, it's just, he's kind of a kook. He was finally, when his time came up, he was not renewed there. He was, he was sent home in disgrace, and eventually he was admitted to a mental institution where he died. It wasn't until after his death, uh, when, when the germ theory of disease came into pro, uh, prominence, you've probably heard of Louis Pasteur and, uh, and, and uh, others that, that, uh, that, that brought this to, to bear. And, and it was only after that that Dr. Semmelweis's observations were finally understood and people began to realize that the principles that he'd been establishing all along were actually true and this was how things worked well. They'd been making false assumptions, and therefore they'd been paying the consequences for those false assumptions. One place where we make false assumptions all the time is in the area of economics and finances. Uh, we, if we would see what God has to say about how financial things are supposed to work, the principles we should follow, we could we could thrive in life. But a lot of times we're self-deceived, or we don't necessarily want to know the truth, or we think we know better, or we don't even try to find out. There are a lot of ways that we make uh, false assumptions in life. Uh, when God has established the right way to live, uh, God, uh, God's ways always work out better because God designed everything, right? He 
created the world and he set everything in place and he set it in motion and, and this is how it works. And although we don't quite understand it all, if we follow his established guidelines, his best practices, his laws for his people, then that is the way that we can thrive in life. You, you probably have heard uh, that, that very early on there was, there was a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. You've probably heard of them before, right? They had two guidelines to follow in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat from that one tree, number one, don't eat from that tree. Number two, do anything else you want, right? Two rules, pretty cool, right? Two rules, don't eat from that tree, do anything else you want. If they followed those, everything was going to be great. Uh, they were going to thrive in the garden and everything was, was awesome. And yet, curiosity got the better of them. Sin got the better of them. They broke number one and sin entered the world and they missed out on that thriving that God had planned for them. Throughout Genesis and, and throughout the, uh, the first five books of the Bible, so the, the, uh, the, the, the law, the Torah, uh, as, uh, as the, uh, the, the Jewish uh, uh, term for it is, the, the Pentateuch, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, uh, the first five books of your Bible, if you, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books, we see that God establishes a whole lot of guidelines, practices, rules, laws, so that, uh, so that his people could, could live well. You've probably heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Well, that's only ten of them. There were a whole lot more other guidelines and rules that God established that it do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Uh, and, and most of those things, you know, his people are kind of like, okay, well, we'll do it, but I don't really understand why. In looking back at it, we can see, okay, well, it's kind of like washing your hands. Uh, we, we, uh, we understand now how things work. God just said, don't do this, do that, because he knew how everything worked. So if you, uh, if you pull out... The, uh, the first five books of the... I don't know. I, it's not exactly the ex- most exciting reading in the world. Can I just say... Can I, can I level with you? Can I get right... More than once... I don't know if I should... Maybe you should turn the recording off for a minute. I don't... But more than once, when I can't sleep, I have pulled out Leviticus. <laughs> and it works, okay? It's... it's, it's you know, do, don't do this and do that, and, and these laws just kind of seem a little bit obscure, and and uh, maybe they're, you know, I don't know, and, and maybe that applies to them, but not to me. And, and pretty soon, you know, you're you're waking up in the morning. But uh, these laws that God established were to help them live well. If they would just follow these things, they would live, kind of like Dr. Semmelweis and the hand washing. These things work best. If you do this, you'll thrive. There's a great summary of all this in Leviticus chapter 18. So um, uh, verses 1 through 5, it kind of sums up. This is the whole deal. This is why God is establishing all these things. Leviticus 18, 1 to 5, he says, uh, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So God spoke to his people and he told them not to live like the Egyptians where they were coming from. And not to live like the Canaanites where they were heading. Instead, they were to follow his way of living uh, because that's where real life is. Because they were theists. Now, that's one of those words that kind of doesn't roll off the tongue too great. But they were it means they believed in one God. There was one God. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees because why? I am the Lord your God. 
They were theists. One God. I am the Lord your God. They would be living differently. Because they were theists, they were going to live differently than the atheists where they were coming from in Egypt. And the atheists where they were heading in Canaan, they had one true God, and so they were going to follow him, his principles, his laws, his rules. Acknowledging God as my God changes how I live. It changes whose rules I follow, right? If, if I follow after the one true God, then it's going to change how I live. I'm not going to live like the people that don't follow after the one true God. So if I'm a theist, I'll live differently than those who aren't theists. A lot of the information from this series um, I've gleaned Okay, stolen. No, uh, gleaned from uh, from a pastor uh, down in in Georgia, Kevin Myers, uh, Twelve Stone Church. He has a great uh, quote. He, he describes all this as living within the fence of God's favor. You've probably noticed there's a fence on the stage, and you probably wondered why. No, eh, you probably didn't care. No, oh well, whatever. Somebody left a fence up. What's the big deal? Um, it's it's kind of like. That hand-washing thing again. There's, there's a fence, there's a line, there's a, God establishes these rules and laws and practices and he says, hey, do this and you will live. In other words, stay within the fence of my favor, God says. Get behind the fence, follow these things. If you live outside of the fence of his favor, you won't experience his blessing. But if you live and follow after his practices, his, his laws, his rules, uh, the way things live, he's set it up, he's created. If we do things the way he has set things up, then there will be blessing, there will be favor, there will be thriving taking place. The problem is, so many times, we look at that as a hindrance. A block. Oh, we can't do... When in reality, when we step out from behind that fence, we're stepping out from the favor of God. In Leviticus, God uh, goes on. I don't know if you flip back down through there. Don't look too close because it gets pretty graphic. It's kind of PG-13 or probably even R-rated here at some point. Uh, He talks a lot in there, the next couple of chapters in Leviticus 18 and 19, uh, pretty graphically about sexual misconduct and and, and what to do and what not to do with who and and with with, not with who and all these. He talks about honoring your parents. He talks about honoring the Sabbath day. He talks about sacrifices and how they should be made and when and where and and what they are and all those kinds of things. He addresses many different principles here, and it kind of scattershot a little bit, but many different principles of how we should treat one another. He talks about farm life, growing crops. Some of you can relate to that. Uh, I'm a city boy, and I can't necessarily relate to that. But, uh, but if we're reading, uh, anytime we're reading there in that Old Testament stuff about uh, crops and this agrarian society, it's talking economics. We don't necessarily uh, follow all those principles because we're not living that. But, but you know, they had like land and they were planting things and they had animals and they were raising them and, and, and this was their economy. If the land didn't produce, the economy tanked. If, if uh, the, it did produce, it was, it was an amazing blessing. So uh, as, as we read through some of that, uh, we're going to get not just principles for farming, we're going to get principles economic principles that we can apply even today. Toward the end of of Leviticus 19, there's a a little passage there that I think we can relate to the the cycle of how God works even in financial matters in our lives. 
Leviticus 19, verses 23 to 25 says, When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years, you're to consider it forbidden. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year, all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. Again, I am the Lord your God. You're theists. You believe in the one true God. Uh, if you do that, you're going to treat your, uh, your, your, your crops, your fruit trees, that's specifically what he's talking about there, you're going to treat that this way. Uh, and in this, in this little story about fruit trees, in this guideline about fruit trees, we see an illustration, I believe, of, of an economic cycle of how God works in life. This is what you should do in order to increase your harvest. I think so many times, so many times we think getting inside the fence means less for us, right? Oh, I guess I'm going to miss out on that because I got to do what God wants me to do. I guess I'm not going to be able to, and everybody else is, but I won't be able to. And so we, we, we follow the guidelines of God, whether it's in economics or anything else, we follow these, these guidelines and principles, and we're okay, well, I guess, uh, yeah. But really, I want to... God says living within the fence of his favor is not so that you can have less than. Uh, Following these principles is always more than, right? Uh, This is his standard that he's established so that we can increase our harvest. That's what we do in order to increase our harvest. The standards that he establishes uh, don't mean that it's less for us. It's more for us. And so uh, we have this economic cycle. If we look there at, at how they handled fruit trees, I think we can apply a lot of that to, to our financial lives. And so you've got a little place to, to fill some things in there, and, and uh, maybe we'll walk through it today. So go ahead and go to the next slide. The economic cycle. The first part on this side is to sow. Now, that's not sow like this. This is sow like plant, right? We're sowing. The next one is grow, and the next one is harvest. So sow, grow, harvest. Uh, We we see that uh, written out here um, in in these few verses. You get to the land, you're going to plant crops. You're gonna, you're gonna sow, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna plant these things. This is, this is the plowing and planting phase. This is the hard work phase. This is the, I'm gonna get, get down and dirty and I'm gonna sweat and it's gonna be hard and it's gonna be difficult and there's not gonna be a whole lot to show for it, but I'm gonna just muddle through and I'm gonna work hard. Uh, this is the, the, the plowing and the planting. In every area of life, in every career, all of work, there is a sowing season. It's the hard work of plowing and planting. There's always going to be the sowing season. In the growing season, this is the weeding and waiting time. This is where we weed and wait. Can I just say, again, maybe we should turn that off, but two things, if I was going to list two things that I hate the most, waiting would probably be before weeding, but they'd both be right at the top of my list, okay? Weeding and waiting, not very fun things to do. Uh, the first three years, this says, with the, with the whole planting and, and the, the fruit trees, it says for three years, you're going to let growth occur. The roots have to get established. The, the, the branches have to grow strong enough to hold healthy fruit. Uh, the, so, so he says, don't eat the fruit. It's, it's not fit for consumption. Don't eat the fruit. In other words, don't shortcut the process. There's got to be a time of weeding and waiting. You've got to wait for growth to occur. 
There's got to be time when we delay gratification. There's not a whole lot of time in this life, in, in our culture today, when we delay too much because we just want to get it right now. Weeding and waiting is a part of this process. And then harvesting. Harvest, that's the reaping and the reward, right? That's the reap and reward. We get to harvest. Uh, of course, the fourth year, it says, if you, if you read through that, the fourth year, the first harvest is God's. We're going to talk a whole lot more about that next week. But uh, God created the whole thing. He created the whole process. He created the nutrients. He created the land. He brought the people there. He provided the seeds for them to plant. So, so let's be sure to remember who owns it all. The first year of harvest, uh, after the, so after the three years of weeding and waiting, then the first harvest is God's. The fifth year and beyond, it's harvest. It's harvest time. It's time to be prosperous. It's time to, to, uh, to, to, to not only take some of those seeds and start the process over again, uh, so grow harvest, so grow harvest, but also we get to prosper. We get to enjoy the fruit of our labor. So, which of these three do you like the best? You're allowed to answer. Which of these do you like the best? Weed and wait. Some, there's a weird person right over here. The rest of you... Well, we knew John was weird anyway, though, so... The favorite one is harvest, right? We, we get to, to harvest. This is where we get the reward, we get the bounty, we get the blessing. Uh, and in fact... Um, we, uh, you know, we, we, we really like the harvest. This is what God desires for us, and so he set up this cycle, this process. And so uh, because we like the harvest so much, and once we get a taste of it and we enjoy it so much, we start to think that life should be all about the harvest. And in, in that, we at times can step outside of the fence of God's favor and we become consumed with consuming and we want more and we start living a different kind of cycle. And I think it's pretty prevalent in our culture today. It's not so grow harvest. Instead, it's harvest, 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 right? We want to harvest. And then once we harvest, we want to harvest again. And then we, once we harvest it, we want to harvest some more. We want to have that blessing. We want to have that flowing all the time. We want to skip the plowing and the planting. Come on, that's hard. That's, uh, come on. We, uh, we want to skip the weeding. Well, everybody but John wants to skip the weeding and the waiting. Uh, we're, just, we're just shooting for harvest. We want to harvest, harvest, harvest. And we see that. We're all about the harvest. I mean, if you look at our, our society and the, uh, the amount of debt that we have individually and also in our, in our government, we, we, we think about the, uh, the, the houses and the cars and the school loans and the credit cards and, and all these other things. We end up owing more than we make and we think that somehow we're, that's going to generate more. But God says it doesn't work that way. He says it's unsustainable. Harvest, harvest, harvest is not a cycle that leads to thriving. It's a cycle that leads to bankruptcy. And we overextend and we overextend. We think that we're going to get more by stepping out of the fence of God's favor. We think that, that, that we can get more and more by if we just cut a little corner here and, and do a, And in the process, we're shortcutting the whole thing instead of doing the hard work of plowing and planting and weeding and waiting and not overextending. In Scripture, we have the very wisdom of God on how the economics of, of, of His kingdom work. But so many times we want to circumvent that cycle. We seem to think that the economic cycle, not only do we want it to be harvest, 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 but at some point we make the shift and think it should be 
harvest, harvest. In other words, we, we deserve it to be harvest, harvest, harvest. So we want to skip the hard stuff. We don't wor- want to worry about waiting. We just want the blessing. In, harvest, harvest, in a harvest, harvest, harvest world, we all should just get to keep reaping what we want, to keep getting the reward. But if you remove the fence of God's economic cycle, it, you miss his blessing, and there are consequences. There are principles here regarding how we work, uh, and that affects how we harvest. Last fall, we did, we did a whole series on uh, work and God's blessing for work and all of those, those things. I talked a, a, a lot of, at that point about uh, not being idle, the problems of laziness and, and not being idle in our work. Second Thessalonians 3 describes some of that as well. Uh, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Probably because this was on my mind, that phrase was uttered last night right before dinner at my house, right when the, uh, when the table needed to be set. He who will not work, neither shall he eat. It comes straight from Leviticus, straight from what we were talking about, right? Do the hard work, uh, sow, uh, weed and wait, uh, let things grow, and it's the process that leads to God's blessing. Work hard. How you work is a key ingredient in the economic cycle. Another way that we step out of the fence of God's favor, favor is what's described in, in uh, the fourth year there. Again, we'll talk more about this next week, but, but the first harvest belongs to God. It's not yours. Uh, either because we don't understand this or we've never heard it or we're actively rebelling, whatever the reason, we end up withholding from God what is rightfully his. And, 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 but when we do it, uh, when we do that, we actually thinking, think we're helping ourselves get ahead. Well, I can't afford to give that much right off the top. But when we do that, we're stepping outside the fence of God's favor and he can't bless us because we're not doing what he's designed us to do. An economic theist believes that God is God and he governs my life, even my finances. Everything that I have, everything that I enjoy, they are just gifts from God. Money is not a God, it's simply a gift from the one true God. And so an economic atheist believes there is no God over my finances. I govern my finances, therefore I make the decisions. Dr. Semmelweis and the doctors that he worked with were under false assumptions. They worked very hard to bring life, and the whole time they were causing death. They didn't even know because they didn't understand, and we're kind of similar. We live under false assumptions many times, uh, shooting for economic prosperity when in reality we're undermining the very favor of God that we want, and we're bringing loss instead of blessing. Again, Pastor Kevin Meyer says, if you talk and pray like a theist, but you handle money and work like an atheist, God is powerless. 
So many times we put our religious life, our life with God, in one category, but that doesn't bleed over into our finances. Usually it's the last thing to come. God can't bless you and bring the favor that he wants to if you're living outside the fence. If you're cheating the process, you won't experience the blessing. Many people pray like theists but live like economic atheists. And so this series is designed to help you live within the fence of God's favor. I pray that for the next couple of weeks, you won't say, oh, he's talking about money, I'll come back in March. (laughs) And this is not, I hope you're hearing my heart, this is not about getting money for the church. This is about you thriving in the life that God desires for you. And so many times we miss it and we get overextended and we want to keep up with this and we want to do that and, and crisis comes and, and, and then we, we use that as an excuse to skip the principles of that God has established. It's not about the church wanting your money. It's about our desire for you to experience God's favor in your life. Work God's economic cycle. Shortcuts are for atheists. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word and how it applies even in such practical ways as how we use our money. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would speak to our hearts, that we wouldn't just turn this off or, or uh, respond in ways that, uh, that push you aside or, or think that we've already got this covered. Or, Lord, I pray that your spirit would, would truly work in great ways in our hearts. Lord, so many times financial stuff seems like, uh, seems like somebody's prying in our lives and we want, that's personal. And Lord, uh, you are, you have to be an intimate personal part of our lives. And that even includes, uh, this area of our lives. And so I pray that you will work on us, that you will, you will, uh, your spirit would work and, and, uh, and develop us in this area. Lord, and if there's, there's, uh, uh, confirmation to be made there that, that we're on the right track, Lord, I pray that you would provide it. If, if, if we need to make some changes, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us as well. And it wouldn't come from, from, from me or, or anyone speaking here, but that your spirit would do the work in our hearts. Lord, I pray, I desire that, that, that we all experience your blessing and your favor. And so I pray that you would help us to focus on you even in this area of our finances. And so, Lord, I pray for your blessing and your favor as we go from this place, that we would go under the presence and the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.